I was just talking about this with, uh, with some friends. There was a St. Bernard that hiked up the Boot Spur Trail, which is on Mount Washington, and just ran out of gas and just decided that he was going to hang out at the top of Boot Spur. So you're talking about, I don't know how heavy St. Bernard's are, I would guess 100 plus pounds. Oh yeah, they just sit there. Yeah, exactly. They just stop and sit down. <laughs> and that group that you're talking about, they were the ones that had to come up and get the dog. And they even said, I think, one of the people in the news article I read had said that they're not hikers or mountaineers. They just will come if a dog needs help regardless of where they are. So, mm -hmm. so much for that theory about St. Bernard's being the, the mountain saviors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Broadcasting from the Woodpecker Studio in the great state of New Hampshire. Welcome to Episode 5 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. This week, we are continuing our intro to New Hampshire hiking series with a discussion about the terrifying 25 list. Looking to push the limits and get out to some tough and scary hikes? We will break the terrifying 25 list down for you. Our second topic will cover a recent search and rescue on Mount Musalaki that unfortunately had a tragic ending. We will finish the show with a discussion about ways to limit risk when winter hiking in low visibility and high wind conditions. I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. So Mike, let's do the old tradition. What are you drinking tonight, my friend? All right, you're, so you're actually prepared for this tonight? Uh, I think I am. Okay, yeah. well, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. So <laughs> I, I usually drink an IPA, so this is an IPA. I picked up Ugh. some new, a new four-pack of a beer called Creative Differences, which me and you actually sometimes do have when it comes to this podcast. <laughs> and uh, it's by Beer Wolf Brewing, which is a local brewery in the town that I live in. So we have actually two, oh. real, two really good breweries in my town. So it's a little expensive, but it's nice. Yeah, what, what are you drinking? Well, it's, I was torn. I actually did some shopping over at Market Basket early, and I was looking for a beer just so I could be cool like you with the beer. I was tempted to get a Tuckerman's IPA because that stuff is so good. Oh, yeah. I love Tuckerman's. If if I'll have an IPA, which is rare, I will have a Tuckerman's. But since it's the first day of spring, I actually picked up a Mike's Harder Lemonade named after my wonderful co-host. And it's what we drink on the river when we're floating. So... First day of spring. Cheers. Very nice. Very <laughs> nice. So, um, a Mike's Hard Lemonade, huh? That is a, a summertime yeah. drink if, if if I've ever seen one. They're like 800 calories a can. Oh, really? It's like a full day's worth of calories. <laughs> yeah, I've had a few uh, over the years, but I, I'm just not a fruity drink person, so. <laughs> They're so heavy. Oh, my God. Yeah, okay. Well, if you start getting a little tipsy, I'll know that it's too many Mike's Lemonades. <laughs> All right. So we're going to continue with our series that we're calling Intro to New Hampshire Hiking. This is a series of episodes where we'll cover a lot of basic info that hikers in the White Mountains learn as they pursue hiking goals. Last week, we talked about the 52 with a view list, which brings hikers to the far corners of the state to view lesser traveled peaks. And this week, we review the terrifying 25 list one of my favorites, a newer list of trails that is typically pursued by people who have an interest in hiking some of the more difficult areas of the whites. Yeah, I'm excited about this one. This is a, a favorite of mine, but just before we get into the, the terrifying 25 lists, with hiking in the whites, what would you say is the most terrifying thing that's happened to you? I discovered this shoot over by Mount Carrigane, which is called the Lowell Shoot, 
And I can honestly say that was probably one of the most terrifying things I've ever done. I did this with um, two other fellow hikers. It's just a, a random gully that is adjacent to Mount Carrigane and Mount Lowell. It's so brittle in there that you can't really use technical climbing gear. So you have to just pull a, um, oh, what's that guy's name there? Oh, Alex Harnold. Oh, yeah, you got to pull a Honold in there. Oh, yeah, well, I'm glad I was busy that day. I think I was working that day or something, so I'm glad I missed that one. But That was uh, terrifying. Yeah, and I think uh, we've got some pictures of that, so we'll... Oh, actually, you wrote a blog post on that, so we'll have to link that in the show notes. Yeah, that'd be fun to cover sometime. It's not um, something I'd recommend for many people. Or anybody. I don't think I'd ever... Yeah, I don't think I'd do it again. There are some people that have tried it based upon that blog post, but yeah, it was terrifying. You get jelly legs and the whole thing. It's awful. Yeah, we'll, we'll do a deeper dive on the, the Lowell shoot because that is a, it's an interesting day that you guys had out there. But uh, in the meantime, I will post it on the show notes so that people can read the blog info about it. Now, how about you? What was your most terrifying experience? Um, I've had a couple of sketchy situations. I'd say <laughs> years ago, I'd hike with the, my, my daughters and my niece and nephew, and we had a few meltdowns that were kind of terrifying because I was stuck in the woods for a mile or two and trying to figure out how I'm going to get these little kids back to the car by myself. But those all tended to work out. But I'd say probably the most terrifying situation that I ran into was a a winter overnight. So again, on Mount Carrigan, we were hiking. We did an overnight where we, you know, in the middle of winter, we were hiking and one of the, the, the folks I was hiking with, he went a little bit ahead. He tried to go fast and light and he was far ahead of us. He made it back to the camp site that we had set up and he uh, started experiencing hypothermia. So we, I think he was probably at the campsite for about an hour before we got back just because we were all carrying heavier stuff. And we got back and he was in the throes of a, a hypothermic situation. So we had to really rush and, mm. you know, get some hot liquid in him. And we weren't sure if that was going to fix it. So I was in a situation where I was talking to my friend Tom, who I hike with pretty frequently. And we were talking about the need for us to have to go out and probably hike about six miles out to the road to get um, a search and rescue going. So that was probably the most terrifying thing that I, I had dealt with because I just had never dealt with somebody that had hypothermia. But luckily, we got some hot liquid in him and he and he recovered throughout the night but it was pretty pretty scary watching him go through the the hypothermia he was screaming and it was it was a rough night i should talk to him and see if we can get him on the show someday i I don't know it's a little touchy it was a was a rough trip Mm -hmm. all right so the terrifying 25 list we're going to get into an introduction on this so i got a little bit of information about the history of this list so it's a pretty interesting story so the story of the terrifying 25 list it's similar to the 52 with a view and the 4,000 footers that we talked about where it's a list of hikes that you need to complete. Um, And this list starts with a local writer in the Hampshire area and a climber named Trish Herr. And Trish has two daughters, Alex and Sage, and they created the the Terrifying 25 list as a way to identify the more challenging and interesting trails in the White Mountains. Most of these trails have rock slides, caves, or boulders. And these trails tend to be steeper and are among the toughest areas to hike in New Hampshire. We'll get into the specifics of the list, but before I get into that, uh, some more background on Trish and her daughters. Prior to creating the Terrifying 25 list, 
Trish had hiked the 4,000-footers with both of her daughters when they were very young. Uh, She wrote a book about it, which is called Up, A Mother and Daughter's Peak Bagging Adventure, where she recounts the the, the hiking uh, adventures that she had with her daughters. With having the two daughters who had already completed the 4,000-footer list at a young age, they were looking for their next adventure, so Trish worked with the girls on this project to review the 28th edition of the White Mountain Guide and pick out a list of 20 required trails and 14 elective trails. So there's actually a total of 34 trails on the list, and they label it as the Terrifying 25. Stomp, why don't you take us through the rules of the game, break it down for us exactly how the uh, the requir- required trails and the elective trails work. Sure, the rules- rules are really simple. You just have to hike 20 of the required. And out of the elective trails, which Mike mentioned there were 14, you have to pick five. And um, I'm really curious as to what their decision-making process was. I've seen her commenting on social media a number of times because people have asked her this question. And my understanding is, is that it was it was like an exercise where she was working with the girls to go through the list. They picked out a number of trails that they thought were the most terrifying. And I think that she got some input from a number of different hikers. I mean, they they hike a lot. I think that they're um, gritting and doing a number of other hikes. So my guess is that you know they mostly came up with it just by reading the White Mountain Guide and then got some feedback from, from some mm-hmm. folks that they, they're friends with. Mm. Okay. Now, once you complete all of these and you get a patch, a nice fancy patch, I really do like the patch, actually. I, thought, I believe that was a design by yeah, one yeah, of the children. Yeah, it looks really nice. And uh, I don't know, are, do you, have you tallied up how far along you are on this? You haven't completed the Terrifying 25, have you? Well, I've done 14 of the 20 and five of the elective. Yeah, yeah, not bad not too all. bad. I get sort of bored with summits. That ties into the rules. You don't need to summit anything. You just have to do the trail. And that's where these crazy ledges and scrambles and boulders are. You can take it from any direction. Just you have to complete the trail. Very cool. Yeah. And one of the examples that I give people when they ask about this list and, and, you know, that point that you talk about, about how you can take any direction is this is one of these lists where you can actually, there's a couple of trails that are on, you know, they start at the top of like Mount Washington or the, the Great Gulf. And you can actually drive up the mm-hmm. auto road, park at the at the uh, the observatory, and then hike down like the Sphinx Trail, and that will get you one of the one of the trails mm. on the list. So there's no real rules about going up or down, either way. I have an idea. When you run the Mount Washington Road Race this year, you can run up it and then go I down. I could. Space. I could. That would be that'll be a little <laughs> painful. So I think the last time, so I you know I do the Mount Washington Road Race as many times as I can. I think usually I go down Lion's Head. I try to take the easiest route down that I can after after that. How about a Dave Dunham? You can run down, run back down as fast as you possibly can. I've done that. I haven't seen that guy in ages. He's a, he's a, a legend. We should get him too. Yeah, yeah. He would be an interesting guy. So Dave Dunham is a is a legendary runner that oh, yeah, yeah. I think he's won like the Mount Washington Road Race like three or four times. But yeah, we'll do an episode on the Mount Washington Road Race. So pack that away and let's talk about the Terrifying mm. 25. Yeah, I'm just getting so excited here. I know. <laughs> There's no winter patch. There's no patches for dogs. The list creators discourage owners from pushing their dogs too far. We'll probably talk about dogs in the future, but I I personally, I've hiked for about eight years now, and I've had three separate incidents with dogs on trails where we had owners that had pushed a dog too far and either got stuck carrying them because the dogs were exhausted or the, the paws had been torn up. 
And mm-hmm. I think on the terrifying 25 list, the, you know, Trish and the daughters make a good point there. You know, the dogs will follow the owners anywhere. So if you push your dog beyond its limits, it's going to be a bad situation for everybody. So these are very steep and dangerous trails. So there's some dogs that can handle it, but many dogs cannot. So we got to keep the doggy safe, keep them on the easier trails and off of these crazy trails, unless they're, you know, the rare dog that can actually handle it. Mm. Yeah, side note on that, though, we do not respond to search and rescue calls for dogs. Um, I believe there are some people that have uh, a group that will come out, but it's not related or uh, connected to fishing game, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, you're right. And a matter of fact, I was just talking about this with uh, with some friends. There was a St. Bernard that hiked up the Boot Spur Trail, which is on Mount Washington, and just ran out of gas and just decided that he was going to hang out at the top of Boot Spur. So you're talking about... I don't know how heavy St. Bernard's are. I would guess 100 plus pounds. Oh, yeah. They just sit there. Yeah, exactly. They just stop and sit down. <laughs> and that group that you're talking about, they were the ones that had to come up and get the dog. And they even said, I think one of the people in the news article I read had said that they're not hikers or mountaineers. They just will come if a dog needs help regardless of where they are. So, mm-hmm. so much for that theory about St. Bernard's being the, the mountain saviors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, there's one final reminder. The list is for fun. No one will be recognized as the youngest, the fastest, or the oldest person to complete the list. Yeah, and I I really love this point because it's, we've talked about this in past episodes, but I've had an evolution around hiking. You know, when I first started, it was a transition from running and competitive endeavors. And I always wanted to hike as fast as I could or be the, you know, the fastest one in the group. And I've evolved over time to realize that it doesn't matter how fast or anything else about how you hike. It's just getting back safely. And if you're in a group having fun about it. So this idea that like you're going to be the fastest person to complete this list or the youngest or the oldest, I think Trish and her daughters were really ahead of that idea because we've seen this idea of sort of competitive behavior amongst hiking, the hiking community start to sort of make its way in over the last few years. And I feel like a lot of that stuff tends to be toxic. Mm -hmm. And I think that they were really ahead of the trend on this. So it's a great reminder. So regarding the trails, there are 11 of the required trails in the Northern Presidentials, actually. And I'll just touch upon a couple. Caps Ridge Trail is a really nice one. This is this is fantastic for sunsets. It's about two and a half mile one-way hike. It's accessed by Jefferson Notch Road, and it's much harder than you would think. You can't really base it on the mileage. This is just a very rocky, bouldery trail and steep in many portions. So, um, but again, beautiful sunset. Yeah, and to set people at ease, my uh, I, I hiked that with my my brother and sister-in-law, and my I think Addie was probably eight or nine, so my nine-year-old niece made it up there okay. So. It's not that terrifying. <laughs> She's a pretty tough kid, though. <laughs> That's sort of rude, huh? Oh, hopefully Trish yeah. doesn't come after you. <laughs> <laughs> now, in the northern area is the King Ravine. There are several trails actually within the ravine that you can access. And I'll just mention a couple of them briefly. There's the subway, tough scrambling through some of the most challenging boulder caves in New England. The King Ravine Trail itself is a really steep head wall, just a beautiful scenic view as you're climbing towards Mount Adams. You can see Subway down below. Uh, It's just a beautiful place. Yeah, and all of these trails, I think the way to think about the terrifying 25 as it relates to the presidentials 
If you're looking for multiple ways to hike Mount Washington, Mount Jefferson, Adams, and Madison, there's 11 different trails that you can get through to get views of all four of those peaks. And I typically use the Terrifying 25. I, I look at it in the summer as my like once a month epic hike. So I'll string together a couple of these trails and try to get out there and do like a 15, 16 mile hike. This is the list that I've been working on where I try to do my most sort of epic hikes. And I do a lot of these solo just because I want to move a little bit quicker and, and lighter in the summer. Absolutely. Another one that's really important to mention, and it's probably the most terrifying of the list is Huntington Ravine Trail. I've not personally done this. Boy, I've seen some rescues on this trail summer and winter, and it looks like it's really terrifying. Very steep. Yeah, I should have been a rescue on that one. The first time I hiked it, I hiked it in sandals and my North Face book bag. (laughs) Yeah, Mm. I just didn't know any better. I just went up and I was, it was pretty steep, but I just didn't know any better back then. Well, it's recommended that you don't descend the trail yeah I, I wouldn't go down it i mean it's 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 steep going up there's really two sections that are really sketchy to to get across and you have to just go across beer rock and hope you don't slip and fall right and in the shoulder seasons if there's any ice on the trail then it's even worse make sure it's the right time of the year for that one and you're really prepared for this trail so mike do you want to talk about some of the other trails that are scattered out? Sure. Yeah. So the of the 20 core trails on this list, you know, 11 are in the presidentials and then there's another nine that are spread out across there. There's two that cover the tri-pyramids. There's a loop in the Squam Lakes region for um, Morgan and Percival. Uh, way up north, there's Table Rock. And on Mount Shakura, there's Carter Ledge Trail. There's the Bald Face Circle, which I've talked about as one of my favorite hikes in the Whites. And then there is the Flume Slide and the Ice Gulch Trail. Uh, there's a lot of variety in this, but they do tend to be clustered in that presidential region. So you do get your opportunity to go up in the far north. And I'm interested. I haven't done the Ice Gulch yet, but I'll be I'll be doing that probably this year. And my plan is to finish this list this year, probably in August. Mm-hmm. Stump, you know, if you're going to look at this list, what would you say is the your favorite or most interesting experience on, on this set of trails? One of my favorites would be the Percy Peaks Trail up in Nash Stream Forest. It's pretty remote, and it's like two mini Eisenhowers just stacked next to each other. The northern peak itself is very rocky and ledgy, and then the southern is more just covered in vegetation. They're fairly short and quick to climb, but man, they're absolutely beautiful. And from the south peak, it's a bit of a bushwhack. You can look north towards the north peak, and it's just beautiful. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, I, I would agree. Matter of fact, I have a, a I try my attempt at YouTube stardom. I put together a YouTube video on my hike for Percy's Peak, so I'll uh, I'll link that in the show notes so I can get more than the five viewers I currently have. Okay. I just want to mention one other thing briefly is um, the Algonquin Trail is a trail that's off of Route 49 off of the Sandwich Notch Road, and it basically connects from Sandwich Notch Road to Sandwich Dome. From what I've heard and from what I've seen, it is probably one of the most stunning trails in the region, hands down. I did get to hike up to a really dangerous scramble, and I think that's why this Algonquin Trail is on the elective list, because the scramble is really, really difficult. Up to the call is some of the most beautiful forest I've ever seen, because it's so rarely hiked that the vegetation has narrowed the width of the trails and the the colors are so vibrant in this area. I'd really highly recommend doing this. Now, as for me, I have to go back and try it again because the night before I attempted this trail, there was a slight rain. 
I came in from Sandwich Notch Road, made it up to the scrambles, and I just could not safely get past this one section where to your left, there's a 40-foot drop and there's a 10-foot near vertical rock that you have to climb. And I just wasn't comfortable climbing it. It was just so slippery and, and really scary. It's a sort of a dangerous area, but by hands down, one of the most pretty areas in the region. Nice. Well, we'll go back and check that out together, hopefully. That'd be awesome. And then from there, the uh, traverse is amazing. There's a ridge that goes over to Sandwich Dome by, say, three or four miles. So it's a long traverse. Very pretty. Very cool. Yeah, I don't know that area that well. I, I mean, I, I've come into uh, to Sandwich Dome and Jennings from the, the south, but I just haven't been over to that area. But that's like your backyard, so I'm sure you, you know it pretty well. Mm. Now, what are uh, some of your most interesting experiences on the terrifying 25? I would say... You know, the, the bald face circle, again, I always talk about this. So it's it's one of my favorite hikes and it was really, really epic. But I've, I've strung together, like I said, I do a monthly hike in the summer and I string together sections of these trails and I'll do anywhere from 15 to 20 miles trying to knock off these trails. So probably my most epic one was I strung together the Great Gulf. I went up Madison Gulf, stopped at the Madison Springs Hut, went down Chemin Des Dames, and then up the Great Gully to the peak of Adams, and then across to Madison, and then out the Daniel Webster Scout Trail. So that was probably my my favorite hike, although it was a long day. Uh, but that's that's a that was a crazy hike. I, I would mm-hmm. not do that again just because it was too many miles and too much elevation. So, uh, Stomp, if you were going to recommend like somebody that was more of a you know beginner, where would you recommend they start on the Terrifying Twenty Five list? I would suggest Goodrich Rock, which is in Waterville. It's off of the Livermore Trail System. It's a little spur that you can hike in. It's a fairly quick hike. There's a bit of a talus boulder field that leads up to this enormous, probably 15, 20-foot boulder with a flat top. And what makes this challenging and what probably made it a good pick for the list is there's a ladder with maybe 20 rungs that you have to climb and it's pretty vertical. But it really offers a fantastic view of Waterville Valley ski area from there. It's a very unique spot. Uh, What do you think? I would say Morgan and Percival. So those are not... those are great. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're beautiful. Like, so it overlooks Squam Lake and, you know, it's not a lot of elevation, but they, they have some interesting components. They have uh, a ladder that takes you up to Morgan and then you traverse across to Mount Percival and you can go through some cave systems. So mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, I think it's probably about four or five miles round trip. So not a lot of elevation. What's interesting about those, they have routes around those challenging sections, I believe. So you can bypass them if you're really terrified. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you don't, need to go through the caves you can just bypass it but i would i would recommend doing it you know if it's a if it's a rainy day or something like that you may want to skip it but overall it's not that terrifying to go up on those peaks and they're also on the 52 with the view list so you get two lists two peaks on each of them so it's worth it it can be a little crowded though. It can be. Get there early. Yeah. I, last time I did it, I got there at like 6.30 in the morning. And as I was coming down, I was the only car in the parking lot. And then as I was coming down around 8.30, 9 o'clock, the, the, the lot was filling up. Mm-hmm. How about some um, resources? Do you have any suggestions where people can go to research these? Yeah. You, so you can go to the Terrifying 25 website. So they've got a, a nice website that breaks down all the rules that we've just covered. Uh, there's also a Terrifying 25 Facebook page. And I, I think I already mentioned this, but I'll, I'll plug Trisha's book, which is called A Mother and Daughter's Peak Bagging Adventure. 
definitely worth checking that out. And, you know, the, the Facebook page is very supportive. It's informational, so there's not a lot of nonsense on there. Yeah, anything, any questions you have, everybody's very supportive on there. So. so I think that's it. So we've covered the 4,000 footers, the 52 with a view, the terrifying 25. So hopefully anybody that's a new hiker is learning a lot from us. I think so. At this point, we're covering the whole state. <laughs> I think we've probably covered, and hearkening back to our redlining. Oops, that's I can't say that. Harkening back to that yeah, discussion. Tracing the whites. What percentage of trails and peaks have we covered so far in this podcast? <laughs> I, so what I can tell you is... I am in the I'm in the process of finishing up the 4000 footers. I've got three more peaks on the 52 with a view and then I've done 17 of the core trails on the terrifying 25 and I think 7 or eight of the electives and I tallied up my tracing the white slash redlining total probably a couple of weeks ago when I was at 40%. So my best estimate is that if you completed these three lists that you would likely be somewhere between 40 to 50% done with tracing the, the White Mountain Guide. All right, so that was a good discussion on the Terrifying 25. We're going to move on to our second topic here, which is an unfortunate situation that just happened last weekend on Mount Musalaki. There was a search and rescue call that unfortunately ended in a, um, a hiker fatality. So it's a really you know, never a fun story to uh, to have to cover when somebody doesn't make it. But um, Stomp, if you want to give us a breakdown on, on exactly what happened, talk sure. about it for a little while. Sunday, March 14th at about 7.45, Fishing Game was notified of an overdue hiker. His name is Roy Sanford, 66-year-old man from Plymouth, Mass. His plan was to go up the Glencliff Trail and hike to the summit of Mount Musilak. He left the trailhead at about 7.45 a.m. Now, his family was expecting him to come back around 7 p.m. for dinner. Apparently, he didn't show up, so they gave him some time, but then ultimately called New Hampshire State Police. A New Hampshire trooper was able to locate the person's car at the Glencliff Trailhead. That night, officers were called to do a hasty search. They experienced blizzard conditions, whiteout conditions, sub-zero temperature. They made it actually to the summit of the South Peak, just south of the summit of Mount Musilak, but had to turn back for safety because of low visibility and wind. All night long, they continued clearing various trails around the mountain. The next morning, March 15th, Several rescue crews gathered, consisting of conservation officers, mountain rescue services, and PEMI search and rescue. They did not find any sign of him that night. On the next morning, on March 15th, several ground teams started up again through various trails looking for him, and we were assisted by New Hampshire Army National Guard. At about 3 p.m., conservation officers did spot footprints leading down into Gorge Brook. And at about 3.40, they did find this hiker, another unfortunate incident on Musilak. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I mean, we just talked about the, the rescue that had happened a couple of years ago with the, the Dartmouth student, and it was the same general area, right? Yes, it was. About 3,000 yeah. feet, maybe 4,000 feet. Yeah, yeah. If they hiked down four, 45 minutes from treeline, it's about probably 3,000 feet, yeah. In that neighborhood. Wow. Now, when did you when did you get notified of the the need to to get out there and start looking for for the lost hiker? Mm. This is one of these 
heart-pounding moments. I was sound asleep. It was 5.45 when my alarm went off, and that rarely happens. So that's, so if I'm understanding this, so the hiker left his car at like 7.30 in the morning on Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. The call came in from the family in the evening. 7 p.m. Yeah, Fish and Game did sort of a, a, a search on their own without any outside assistance, and then you get a call at 5.45 the next morning. Right, so hasty searches occurred that evening and overnight. And that's, we discussed that, and that's just a few people quickly going through all the trails as quickly as they can, trying to find out if the person's on the trail or on the summit, you know, the obvious places. Got it. And what are you thinking? You, so you get the call at 5.45, you know that it's somebody that's been out all night. What, do you, what, do you, what goes through your head when that happens? In this case, with the forecast, I was really apprehensive. I, I knew it was going to be a bad day, a tough day for everybody. It's no joke. And you're putting yourself at the most risk that a rescuer probably could put themselves in in under these circumstances so i knew it was going to be a tough day and the wind chill factor above tree line so just for people who aren't familiar musalaki is a sort of a standalone mountain to the west and the whites and it's it's got a sort of a tabletop uh summit so it's a it's a wide open sort of flat summit it, it curves a little bit, but it's it's mostly flat. So even though it's not as high as the Franconia Ridge or the Presidentials, it still gets some crazy wind. But wh- what are you talking about as far as wind chill factor and wind, wind speed? In the parking lot, when I arrived at the staging area, the wind just getting out of my truck was probably a good steady 20 miles an hour. With that, you're talking sub-zero above treeline. Absolutely. They must have experienced sub-zero temps. Oh, so wait a minute. Are we going back to what happened in the last episode where we talked about how you're the clipboard guy and you're not actually <laughs> out there helping at this point? Yeah. In this case, I had uh, patients to work with at my job and I had no way to get out of it, but I worked the bookends. I showed up first and I provided radios and GPS units and hand warmers and extra gear to the the members that did respond. And then on the tail end, I shuttled rescuers back to their cars. So, you know, you do what you can. We're all volunteers, so you help out how you can. Yeah. Are they able to get a big crew on a Monday morning like that? I would think that a lot of people would be out working. Yeah, we had a tough time getting people on this one. They were, well, I wouldn't say a tough time. It is harder because of work, but um, we had three responders from PEMI. Mountain Rescue Services probably had half a dozen. The fishing game officers probably about a dozen or so. So that's a, a decent crew to cover the major areas of Musalak and the major trails. Got it. Yeah. And that's a, f- I mean, that, that summit is difficult because you're, it's a, it's a pretty good distance from the trails that get you below tree line. So I think probably Gorgebrook is maybe like a quarter mile and then um, Glen Cliff might be about a half a mile. So when you lose visibility up there, if you're above tree line, it's like, if you don't have like a, a GPS tracker or you haven't used a, a compass to get your, your bearings, like you're basically trying to thread a, a needle with no visibility at all right. to find the trails that bring you under the mm-hmm. tree line. Which, which is what must have happened to this hiker. With the wind heading eastward, the assumption was probably that he was on the eastern side of the mountain, perhaps. So I guess the emphasis was to try to cover the trail where he went, the summits, and then to go down the obvious trails and the gorges, Beaver Brook, uh, Gorge Brook, 
Carriage Road, Glencliff Trail. Those are the, the obvious places. So that was the strategy, more or less, was to focus all the efforts on those areas. Got it. So you had insane weather conditions. You've got a small search and rescue team because it's a Monday morning, and you've got fish and game out there. And then were the helicopters able to do flyovers right away, or did they have to wait for the weather to clear? That's a really good question. Um, I'm not quite sure, but in the morning, it was whiteout conditions. And, you know, I was talking with the three members of PEMI, just running through scenarios, just reminding people like, um, you know, in those circumstances, do you have your two goggles? Do you have flagging tape? Do you have your GPS? Um, when you get to tree line, mark that spot, because if you enter into that low visibility scenario, you want to be able to have a quick way back to where you started just to get out of danger. So I'm not sure what time Army National Guard showed up, but after work, I drove back to the original staging area and nobody was there. So I ended up just jumping trailhead to trailhead trying to find um, some form of a staging area or a command center. I went to the carriage road. There were several fishing game trucks there, but nobody present. My gut after seeing the carriage road was that there had to be some staging area at uh, Ravine Lodge, perhaps, because that was where we had staged before for the Dartmouth student. My gut proved me right. The gate at Ravine Lodge Road was open. There's a gate right at the start, and that leads a couple miles into a second gate. When I arrived at the second gate, there were several fishing game trucks, but the gate was closed. So it took me a few minutes to really get my hands around what to do. And then I noticed that the lock was off of the second gate. So I ended up opening the gate and taking a chance in my truck. Thank God I got some new tires. Because <laughs> there were just deep snow drifts that covered the last mile from the second gate to the ravine lodge. And ultimately, I did discover um, that Lieutenant Neeland had made his way in. I saw his car there when I arrived. His car was still running, but I couldn't find him anywhere. And at that time, that's when I saw the Black Hawk actually flying from the summit directly overhead at Ravine Lodge and heading south towards Dartmouth. Wow, so that's that's 36 hours that uh, the hiker is out in those conditions. And mm. even a very well-prepared hiker could be in serious trouble in that situation. Yeah, I can't stress enough. I mean, just getting out of the car that morning at staging and that afternoon, it was just bone-numbing cold. Within a minute, you had to get back in your car. Yeah, yeah. And there was some reports of hikers who, after this story came out, there was a number of hikers that had posted in the the numerous hiking sites around the fact that they had hiked and summited Musalaki in, on that day and had come down, but nobody had mentioned that they had seen this particular hiker. So there was some people going up there, but one person had described the, the weather conditions as pretty harrowing and that they felt like they were really lucky that they didn't uh, get in trouble themselves. So it's it's really sad. You know what, you know what it reminds me of? It, it reminds me of the time that you and I hiked up um, Flume and made it to the summit. It was very similar. You couldn't actually expose yourself to the summit for more than 30 seconds to a minute without 
rushing and bailing off of the summit to get back into tree line. It was that bad. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was like, I think that day that we had hiked flume and, and Liberty was like minus 30 wind chill or something crazy like that. Yeah, No question. It was comparable. Yeah. So then, then put that in a situation where you're in a wide open summit where you're a quarter mile away from getting below tree line and you can't see anything and you've got to thread a needle. You've got basically three options to get below tree line on trails and they, you know, they're very, difficult to find when there's no visibility. Mm-hmm. So very sad story, tragic for the family. Our thoughts and prayers go out to them. And, you know, it's not a lot of detail on exactly what happened here. I mean, there could it could be anything that, that caused him to to get in trouble. So there's no no way that we can speculate on, on that other than it was tough conditions. Yeah. Yeah. One final point on this uh, fishing game report. I, I hate to make light of this, but it's actually sort of curious. But uh, let me read this to you. This time of year always offers a challenging time for enjoying the wilds of the state. Temperatures have the potential to change by 20 degrees in a day. Additionally, the mountaintops have retained most of their winter feel, but still swarm brooks and streams with water making crossings more difficult. And then here it is. It's a great time to get out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, just wait till the weather's a little better. So I think that could have been um, worded differently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it could be. Not to talk to the uh, the publicist for the fishing game group. <laughs> yeah, what a great time to get out. <laughs> Minus thirty. Yeah, so I, w- I wanted to transition to our third topic, which is somewhat re- related to this tragic situation here. Uh, and I don't want to talk specifically about this particular hiker because what we you know what we had said is we we don't know exactly what happened on this in this case. So. I don't want this this topic to be a, a breakdown of what this particular person could have done right or wrong, uh, but I do want to talk about limiting risk when you are solo winter hiking. So I think a lot of people will say like, well, don't don't hike solo in the winter, which yeah, you're right. For the most part, if you want to stay safe, don't hike solo. But uh, my philosophy on this has always been that if if I wait for somebody that's available to go hiking, I'll never go hiking. So I do go solo hiking and I'm not going to fault anybody that that goes solo hiking. But when you're dealing with risky weather in the winter or just even in general when it comes to visibility, Stomp, can, can you talk a little bit about some of the strategies that you can implement to limit risk when you're in these situations? Yes. First and foremost, know the weather. There's so many resources to really get a decent forecast. I personally love the Higher Summits forecast from the Mount Washington Observatory. They also have what they call a mesonet system, which is real-time data at various altitudes, which can show you the, the temperature, the wind, uh, give you an idea about what you're expecting for uh, wind chill. Mountainforecast.com, I believe, is another one, which is fantastic. You have the Mount Washington Avalanche Center. So first and foremost, get the weather report and know what you're facing and always be aware that regardless of the weather, things can change. So that's step number one. Yeah. And I I have a, much like I have a tracking system for my GPS and and organizing my hikes, I I have a a system with the weather report. So I, uh, it's very similar to what you just talked about. I will, I'll take a look at mountain forecast, which will give me sort of at a high level, whether or not we're going to be talking about a clear day, a cloudy day, a little bit about temperature and wind. I sort of take that as a 
as a very general guide. And then I'll look at the higher summit forecast on the Mount Washington Observatory within two days of when I'm going to hike. And that sort of helps me dial it in. And then I'll do a reality check with mountain forecast and then the the National Weather Service forecasts. Mm -hmm. And that gives me a pretty good idea about whether or not I'm dealing with a day where it's low risk, medium risk, or high risk. So that's my system. If the weather does change, turn around. Yeah, and that's one of the things that when when we look at these fatal incidents that happen, there's always a point where you know you can break down the situation and say that you know this is the point where if the person had recognized that they were in a risk situation and had turned around, it would have turned out a little bit better. Uh, the the challenge there is that you don't know what that moment is all the time. So the goal is to try to get your your risk tolerance and your awareness of your situation so in tune with the environment that you're in that you you turn around much sooner than you would otherwise need to. I think back to when you know we've hiked the ridge before and we had that day where we couldn't see anything coming up to, to Mount Lincoln and we just said, you know, it's time to turn around. Let's let's call it a day. So having that ability to recognize when you're in that risk situation is critical. The problem is, is that you only get that with experience and time. Mm-hmm. And you've got to put yourself in risky situations to recognize when to turn back. Sure. So it's a balancing act. Stop if you're in in a situation where you, you know, you've done your best to try to limit risk and you're still you're still finding yourself like in in low visibility and you've got to you've got to get yourself out of a bad situation what are um, some techniques that you you recommend to to have at your disposal to to get yourself out of these bad situations or at least limit them well there's your trusty compass you know for navigation that's one thing but if you're in a whiteout situation and you don't have a gps i hate to call it your last resort but it's a great tool to get you back to where you need to go uh quick story i was with my daughter and i was trying to be clever showing her how to bushwhack to save some mileage getting to a trail and we got turned around up on the hills ultimately long story short I had to use my compass to get us back to the highway because even the highway sounds were bouncing strangely off of the mountain. So thankfully I had it and it got us back to the trail. So we started over again. The key is you need to know how to use them. Yeah, which I'm, I'm certainly not. Like I think I would, I'd be okay with a compass if I was dealing with a generally straight trail where I could get a, a bearing that was pretty far out. Where I would get in trouble is in low visibility if I had to do a fair number of twists and turns by, by marking bearings. I would be, I'd probably be screwed if I had to rely on a compass. I do have a compass. I carry a compass, um, a GPS device, a personal locator beacon. There are various beacons that people use these days. Some of them allow you to talk to people uh, via satellite, which are great. Um, some people use flagging, marker flags. I actually have a dozen or more four-foot-high bamboo poles with flagging on the top. They're difficult to carry, but in some situations, if you know you may experience bad weather, uh, they're really handy. Yeah, I see those a lot in the presidentials, and I think what they'll do, and I think it's anytime I see them, I'm like, that's a professional guide using those. Um, What I've seen is they seem to position them kind of in the middle of the rock cairns so that they have sort of in between the the rock markers they have flagging so that they can really find their way 
much more easily. GPSs are fantastic. Most people have some form of GPS either on their phones now. A lot of people are starting to carry legitimate, dedicated GPS units. There's a bit of a learning curve, though, so maybe tap into REI or Solo or some local school to learn how to use them, but they're indispensable because you can mark your starting point, your destination. You can use it to walk you back, essentially, to where you started. Um, it's, it's a great option. And they're fairly reliable in bad weather, cold weather. In terms of softer gear, backup headlamps are really critical. In colder weather, good batteries. You know, I, I typically use the lithium batteries because they last longer. They're stronger in the winter and the cold weather. In terms of goggles, I always carry two because one goggle could frost up and freeze. And if you have no other pair, then you're essentially blind. Sleeping bags... This is something I'm starting to do. I never really carried a sleeping bag, but I see the value in that now. I've always carried small uh, bivvies, which are just the size of a baseball, super light, and you crawl into them like a sleeping bag, and they reflect about 80 to 90% of your body heat back. That's one way that you can survive if you're in trouble. They're really easy to carry. They don't take up much space in your pack. Sleeping pad, the foam pads, Thermarest, those are really great too because if you are stuck in a situation where you have to hunker down, you do not want to be laying on cold ground, snow, and this applies to any season. Even midsummer can be really cold up there at night. So paracord for cairn sweeps. This is an interesting one. I've yet to have to do this, but I, I see the value in this. If you are in a low visibility situation and you're stuck at a cairn, but you can't locate the next, you could secure the rope to a boulder or a stable section of the cairn and walk out 30 to 50 feet to find the next cairn and just do a diameter sweep. More than likely, you're going to find the next cairn to help lead you on the way out. I looked this up earlier. I used to know this fact, but maybe you could uh, fill me in on it. The spacing of cairns. I believe it's 30 feet or 50 feet or somewhere in between there. Do you know that number? You know, I, I don't know that number, but I've always recommended this technique to people, particularly if there's two of you. This is the perfect scenario because you can have one person just stand by the cairn and then have somebody else sweep out. But I always tell people, like, take at least 100 to 150 feet of paracord mm. in your pack at all times just because you never know what you know, what you'll use it for. Um, it can help with securing, you know, a splint or a variety of other things. But I, I definitely always recommend this as an idea for low visibility. Yeah, you can tie yourselves to each other as well. Yeah, yeah that's true. Um, although I'm not going to get tied to you because if you go over the ledge, I'm not coming with you. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't tie yourselves to each other yeah. on the terrifying 25. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll dive into this a little bit more. But I think if, if you're going hiking solo in the winter and you have a feeling or, you know, you're getting weather reports where you, you, you sense that, you know, it could be an issue with visibility or cold. I think, like Stomp said, two pairs of goggles. Make sure you've got a sleeping pad and a sleeping bag. Make sure that you've got a reliable GPS device 
or you have the ability to navigate with a compass and take those bearings when you do have visibility. The other option is bring those marker flags. I think that we don't talk about marker flags enough and they don't weigh a lot. You know, a lot of times they're just bamboo with um, with colored plastic flagging on top of them. So they don't weigh a lot and they're, you know, they're pretty visible and you can stick them between the, the cairn markers to, to really find your way. So uh, there's a lot of techniques that can be done. It's just you need to think through lowering risk as best you can when, when you're solo hiking in the winter. Mm. You know, I'm a big proponent of uh, solo hiking. I think it's fantastic. The one piece of gear that I really rely on the most would be the Beacon in reach by Garmin, Garmin units. I forget who makes my um, my personal locator Beacon, but it's, oh, it's a rescue link. If you're going out solo winter hiking, just have some way to communicate and um, give people your location if you get in trouble. Yeah, yeah, definitely stay safe out there. And, you know, if you can, you know, it's not easy for some people. I mean, like Stomp is one of these people that has difficulty making friends. So it's not easy for him to find somebody that can go hiking with uh, with him. So I understand it. But if you can possibly do it, try to make a friend and don't go solo when you can. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. Yes, that's it. <laughs> so Stomp, any other thoughts on this topic before we wrap up? Well, no, not really. But did you notice I have a sweatshirt on, my boxing sweatshirt? Oh, yeah? I wore this for two reasons. When I have the heat going, it's too noisy to record. And also to remind you that you shouldn't tease an old fart. Oh, yeah. I might get knocked <laughs> out. That's true. Although you are, are you, um, you've got a big week coming up, right? You're getting a, is it a hip replacement? Oh, yes, it is. Oh, you know you're old when that's happening. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's just a quick story. I mean, it, this is related to hip dysplasia. I, I ran the last Mount Washington road race, mid-40s. I think I was like 45 when I ran that. Came down the next day, my hip locked up, and I discovered I had hip dysplasia, of all things. Rona hit. And that was last May. It's been a year waiting for this surgery, and I'm finally getting it done Monday. I can't wait. I'm actually really excited. Yeah, I, I can tell you, one of my good friends, he, he's he's older like you. He had hip replacement, and he was up, he runs with me. So he was back and running probably within eight to 10 weeks. So mm -hmm. hopefully by the summer, you'll you'll be in, in hiking condition. Yeah. I mean, my biggest question for the doctor was, you know, can I get back to search and rescue? Can I carry an individual that will probably put 50 pounds on my leg? And the doctor's like, absolutely. No question about it. And he actually said that um, the first year would be great. And the second year would be just 100% better than even, <laughs> even the original hip. So I'm really encouraged. I have a great doc up at the Alpine Clinic, which is a clinic up near Franconia. So knock on wood, we'll see how it goes. Well, we'll uh, I guess the next podcast that we record will be post-surgery so mm. we'll we'll get some updates but it'll be good that we're doing this these podcasts because it'll it'll keep you busy while you laid up a lot of content for us yeah no question <laughs> you know where to find me all right well well stomp this was a, a good episode and again it's 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 painful to talk about a sort of a tragic situation like this. And again, our thoughts and prayers go out to the, the family members. And, you know, we hate to be able to share those types of stories, but we hope that you know, we can all learn from them and, and think about ways to limit risk while we're out there hiking. So I want to thank everybody for listening. And if, if you enjoyed the show, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the Terrifying 25 list or the search and rescue events that we discussed, we will add show notes to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue Call show pages, which can be found on Facebook and Instagram. 
We look forward to you joining us next week as we continue our intro to New Hampshire hiking series with a discussion about the White Mountain Traverses. Until next time, I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Get out there and crush some peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fishing game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared, and I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all. <laughs>